has been said a couple of times, please open your Bibles to Amos chapter 7. Now, Amos, uh, I have to admit, I'm somewhat filled with trepidation when I am called to preach, usually from the minor prophets. Sometimes I wonder what possessed me to think that preaching the minor prophets would be a great way to spend the uh, short times that I get to preach to you. But this is good. The Word of God is good. When it's hard, it's still good. I'm, I'm, I'm drawn back to the need to see the gospel of Jesus Christ again through His Word. It's a grace that God gives us to be able to look into his word, into strange places, and to see things that, well, honestly, we don't expect to see as good. And I use that with some uh, w w advisedly when I say that we have a grace in the word of God. It's an unmerited favor that we receive from God that we are able to look into his word and to be convicted and affirmed and changed one, from one degree of glory to another. And as Christians, we oftentimes mix two words that we say all, uh, together a lot. Have you heard these words? Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. They're often mentioned so often together that we imagine they're the same word. They're not. I remember many, many moons ago, and it's, it was one of the times that I was going to a seminary, and uh, honestly, I didn't really enjoy the class very much, but we had a, a, a discussion about grace and mercy, and it was pointed out that grace and mercy are two different things. You see, grace is a benefit that we receive that we don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving a punishment that we do deserve. Both are important to the Christian life. But as I had in this class, and as I've noted in the church ever since, there's been a desire to kind of focus more on one of those two things than on the other. It's easy for us to talk about God's unmerited favor, the good things that God gives to us. And, he, and let's be honest, he gives us amazing gifts. He gives us many great and good gifts. The simple fact that we can meet together here on Sunday morning on, in 2022, admittedly in much smaller numbers than we would like, admittedly with more people watching online than I would like to see. I'd like to actually be able to hang out with you and talk to you face to face. But it's a grace to be able to meet together. But there is the question of mercy also operating here. The fact is, as, was, as Daniel pointed out there at our section for confession, we are not honestly perfect. We have failed this week. And we say that kind of like, oh, well, you know, I failed. I haven't done the best things I could. 
No, it's worse than that. If we're going to be honest about it, and Amos is going to call on us to be honest about it, the fact is, we have done evil this week. We have done things that when you think about it, when you deal with it, I mean, we've, we, we paper them over, we pretend that they don't really exist, but we've, we have done evil things. And yes, they're probably not the evilest of things. We can probably find people who are more evil than us. We have the internet, we have Google. We can Google people who are more evil than us. But that doesn't change the fact that we have done things that are not good, that are actually positively bad. We have ignored people who needed to, who needed to hear from us. At least, I'm just going to confess mine, because, you know, I don't know what you guys have done. Maybe you guys are much better than me. I've ignored people. I've gotten angry at people for no good reason. I've pretended that I am a smarter, more intelligent, more handsome person than I actually am. Admittedly, I am very smart, handsome, and intelligent, but I'm not as amazing as I think I am sometimes. I've pretended that the gifts of God are things that I deserved. And all of those things are positive evils. And the worst part about it is, I know that they're evil. I try to ignore it, I try to pretend that I don't see it, but I know it. And I think we all do. One of the most uh, powerful arguments for the existence of God that you can run into is called the argument from morality. Because when you get right down to it, most people will say that there are some things that are good and some things that are wrong. Almost all of us will say that there are things that are moral and things that are immoral. We know in the depths of our beings that there is a such thing as good and evil. We know that, there, that good is something that we want to have. We all cheer when people use this phrase attributed to Martin Luther King, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. We know what justice is. We believe in justice. We desire to see justice. The problem is we forget that sometimes the biggest enemy to justice is us. You see, it's fine to talk about mercy and, 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 and when with somebody else. We'll say that that guy needs mercy or that guy needs mercy, she needs mercy or he needs mercy. It's harder when we recognize the truth. Every moment that we're alive, Every moment that God is forestalling his, uh, his wrath against evil, we are receiving mercy. And we do like to avoid this topic. Um, we'll see that today. We're going to run into a person. We're going to first of all see in the text in front of us, we're going to see God being kind to the people of Israel. A kindness that they don't deserve. We'll see God forestalling his wrath against a people who richly, 
richly deserve it. In case you want to know how richly they deserve it, go back for the first, the first six chapters. You'll get a good idea about how much mercy God has been giving them. We'll see a person, uh, a strong man, a powerful man, a well-connected man, who faces the truth of injustice in his own heart and ignores it and finds ways to deal with it. And we'll see how God reacts to that. This is going to be a difficult text, but it's an important one. It's difficult because as J.M. Boyce puts it, the inevitability of judgment comes through strongly here. For it is based on the unchanging character of God. We think it would be nice if we could change him, if we could get him to be less holy, less upright, more indulgent, but we cannot change him. God is who he is. Consequently, we must come to terms with him rather than he with us. These visions teach us what to do while there is yet time. So just to, to review the time before this, since I don't get to stand in front of you all that often, uh, just to review the situation that we're in. Amos is a prophet writing in the time of a king called Jeroboam II. That's going to be important. Jeroboam II is king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Just to review, the northern kingdom of Israel exists because Solomon had a son who probably watched a little too much Alex Jones on YouTube. He reacted to the people of Israel that he was for him, and he wanted to be a manly man. And so he believed that being a manly man means that he was going to be mean to people. The result was that the majority of people followed a guy named Jeroboam I to separate the kingdom of Israel from the kingdom of Judah. The 10 tribes went north, Judah and uh, uh, Benjamin went south, and that was the end of the, king, the unified kingdom of Israel. Ever since then, uh, it was between Judah and uh, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And Amos is preaching to the northern kingdom under Jeroboam II. It's coming to the near the end of the time of the northern kingdom. It's been a long process. But the kingdom has followed its own devices and desires. They've pretended to be religious for different periods, and they have failed in, the, in overall. They've put religiosity over and above the truth of what God calls them to. They pretended that they were righteous when they weren't. And so Amos giving these Near the end of the, since we're in chapter 7, we know this is near the end of the book of Amos, and we know that these are going to be the final visions that we see. Amos begins it with this. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O oh God, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord resented, re relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. So the first vision we see, 
God was going to send locusts against the people of Israel. Now, we live in the modern West. We generally can assume that when we go to the supermarket, we're going to get food, so we don't know what famine is like. I don't think most of us have actually lived through famine. Some of us have, but most of us haven't. What would have happened there would have been the destruction of Israel. It would have been the elimination of all of their foodstuffs at the wrong time of year. It would have been like right after the first mowings, it means that all of the, all of the food for that year would be gone. And given the fact that you know, they didn't really have the storage capacities that we do now, like with canning and uh, refrigeration, they probably wouldn't be able to live through it. Amos sees that and asks God, please forgive them. And God doesn't forgive them, but he does at least relent and says, it shall not be. And then then a second vision, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. So, get the situation. God is very angry with the people of Israel. If you want to look back through the things that they have done to the poor, to the outcast, to their neighbors, to, their, to the people they called friends, most especially to God, you can kind of understand why God is angry. And he's very angry. I mean, we don't like to think of that. We don't like to think that God would be angry, that he would be righteously indignant at the evils that are done in the world. But he is. Our God is righteous and holy. He stands above all things and he understands what should be. And even as we right now say that the world has evil, some people even are weird enough to use this as an example as to why there, should be, there can't be a God because there's so much evil in the world. God knows evil better than we do. We, at least, can turn away from it. Because we are people who do evil, we can close our eyes to it. We can distract ourselves. God does not distract himself. Indeed, he cannot. He sees evil every day. You think you are indignant when you see evil happen? When you look at the TV and you see what this evil dictator is doing to his people or this terrible person is doing to these other people? You think you're indignant? God's indignancy knows no bounds by comparison. And so that's why you're seeing here in verses 1 to 6 of Amos 7, God reacting angrily against the evils of the people of Israel. And again, uh, just to repeat, I've tried to repeat this over and over as I've gone through the minor prophets. This is not a bad thing. Brothers and sisters, recognize that it is a good thing that God is good. There will come a day when evil will be no more. 
There will come a day when ultimately God will make all things right. It is not yet, and there's a good reason it's not yet. It's because he wants to save some of us. He wants to give us the opportunity to repent. Unfortunately, that is not our natural inclination, and we see that as we continue. You see, you can also see kind of an inkling of it there at the beginning. Jake, uh, Amos says, please forgive. And God doesn't say that he's going to forgive. There's a reason for that. You can't forgive someone who doesn't want to be forgiven. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The people of Israel are not obtaining mercy in these first two facets for themselves. God is giving them mercy because Amos asks for it. But that doesn't mean that they're forgiven. You see, they are, as we're going to see, the people of Israel aren't actually interested in repenting. They don't recognize the evil that they're doing. So, Am so Amos sees another vision. The Lord, the Lord points this out. This is what, the, what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line. With a plumb line in his hand, and the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Mercy is for a time. The mercy that you are receiving right now, that I am receiving right now, will someday end. The mercy that Israel is receiving will end because God will not countenance forever people pretending that they are righteous when they're actually doing evil. He calls to them. He has called to them. If you go look back at Amos chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, he said to the people of Israel, Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. God has told them, please turn away from your wickedness. Please live. And they have refused. The image there of the plumb line, uh, it's a traditional image, and there is some debate in the scholarship. If you want to ask me later, you can buy me nachos about the debates about language there. The plumb line image is generally interpreted to mean that God will judge. He will take his time and go through the people of Israel and find whether or not they're wanting. And of course, the problem is going to be they are wanting. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that we're kind of, uh, we kind of enjoy believing that we're in fact good and that if God was going to balance us on the pro balance of probabilities, we'd be okay. 
And again, if God was judging us based on us, of course, we'd probably be okay. But he's not. He uses his own standard. He uses himself as the standard of goodness. And brothers and sisters, we do not match that standard. The plumb line will go through the people of Israel and it will be shown. They will face the truth. Lest we imagine that this is only an Old Testament thing. People like to quote Romans chapter 1 and 2, but Romans chapter 2 has this thing right at the beginning there talking about how we do this. You see, Paul has taken the first little bit of Romans and he's explained how God's wrath is revealed against all those who practice unrighteousness. And then he has a long list of those who practice unrighteousness. In fact, he shows a kind of gradation as people get worse and worse and worse over time. And then he starts chapter two with this phrase, and so were some of you. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them to yourself, that you will, you will escape the judgment of God? You say that, that what they're doing is evil, but you do the same kinds of things. Do you think you'll escape God's judgment? You, brothers and sister believers, we, we like to believe that we're good, holy people. We're here in church on Sunday morning. Praise God, that's a good thing. Not gonna say that you shouldn't be here on Sunday morning, but do we then turn around and say to the people out there in the streets, well, you guys are not as good as me. You guys are not as holy as me because you didn't go to church on Sunday? Are all of you really here, honestly? I'm sure some of you are right now wondering what you're having for lunch. Some of you are hoping that I will finish the sermon a little bit faster. Some of you have tuned out entirely. I know because I do it. And yet, I can, I can imagine, I can see myself, I can feel myself sometimes going out into the world and telling people that, you know, well, I, 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 know, you, I know you guys are, think you're good, but, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the man, I'm good, I'm noble, I'm holy because, you know, I'm a pastor. I've got a suit. I preach before people. And sometimes they listen. Do you suppose that you who judge those, practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There will come a day when holiness will reign, when righteousness will reign. There will come a day when all of the evils that we see will be no more. They'll be a mist, a dream, they'll be gone. But before we party too much about that, 
How much are we chasing mists? How much are we thinking about these things that are evil and pretending that they're good and imagining that God will not deal with it? This is one of the times when I'm really, really happy that I've read the Bible a couple of times because the Bible actually has a lot of things, a lot of wisdom that we don't really grasp. If I, if I hadn't read Amos 7, I probably wouldn't know that most of the things that I do naturally, most of the things I do to avoid the righteousness of God has already be, been done. I give you Amaziah, priest of Bethel. Amaziah, priest of Bethel, chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, said to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom." Now, there's a lot of words there, and if you aren't careful, you might skate over this and not see how profoundly relevant the person of Amaziah is for us. Let's notice some things about Amaziah. First of all, he knows the king. It would be like us being able to walk up to Justin Trudeau and say, hey, Justin, how's it going? How's it going? He's able to go to the king and say, there's this, Am- this Amos guy that you shouldn't be listening to or that you should be silencing. He's connected to the king. He's not a minor person either. He's a priest at the main sanctuary at Bethel in Israel. He's kind of like the, at the apex of his religious denomination. It would be like I don't know if Al Mohler was coming to a Baptist church or uh, the Pope showed up at a Catholic church or I don't know, the general shows up at the Salvation Army temple or something like that. He's a big deal in his religious background. You're also probably going to recognize that because he is such a big deal and Amos has been railing against the religious evils of the people of Israel, Amaziah is probably one of the guys who needs to repent. He's probably complicit in the evils that Amos has been railing against for the last six chapters. And now he's finally reacting to Amos's call for repentance of the injustice and of God's coming wrath. And he's a religious guy, so he should know about this. He should know the God that he's talked about. He's got the books. He could open them. He could look and see the nature of who God is and how God would react. And how does he answer? Well, verse 10, he asks, he calls on Amos to be canceled. I'm using that phrase generally because that's the way we would probably say it. Notice he doesn't, his first reaction isn't to talk directly to Amos. His first reaction isn't to convince the people around him. His first reaction is to get Amos shut up. 
He's going to the Facebook and the Twitter and the YouTube of his age and saying, cancel this guy, keep him off your, off your, off your platforms, deplatform him, keep him from saying these things that I disagree with. Notice that he, over under, he, he misunderstands Amos's point of view. Amos said, I, the sword will be raised against the house of Jeroboam. And as I told you, Jeroboam, that's kind of a double entendre because Jeroboam II, who is the king right now, is in the stead of Jeroboam I, who is the basis for all of the basis of the, of the tribes of Israel. And so what Amos was saying is, God is going to overthrow the kingship. He's going to bring the sword against the house of Jeroboam. Not just the king, but the very idea of your king will be overthrown. By the way, historically, he's going to do it. You can't actually go find King Jeroboam in Israel today. He doesn't exist. It's been hundreds of years. So he, but Amaziah oversimplifies it, saying, Jeroboam II, he says you're going to get killed by the foreign countries. It, it, this is the way we op operate, isn't it? We don't always listen to the things that people say. If, people, if, people, if we have in our lives those people who will tell us the things we need to hear, not just the things we want to hear, if we're honest, oftentimes we'll first misinterpret them. Then instead of actually dealing with them, sometimes we'll talk about them behind their backs. Tell other people they shouldn't listen to them. We'll try to get them canceled. We'll say, this person shouldn't be listened to. Oh, I thought he was a good guy, but he's not good anymore. And then if that isn't enough, Amaziah, when he goes to talk to Amos, he says, Amos, go home. Go away from here. You're, you're part of this southern tribe. You're, you, you're the enemy. Just go back to your enemy country. Leave us alone. Notice that Amaziah doesn't deal with the truth of what Amos is saying. He doesn't comment on whether or not Amos is telling the truth about what God's nature and about what the people of Israel are doing and why they're wrong. He just goes over it and just attacks Amos. And it's interesting because it's pretty much about the way that Amos is making Amaziah feel. Amaziah is feeling the, uh, attacked. He's feeling in, in, uh, opposed. And so instead of dealing with the actual substance of the debate, the substance of the argument, he just deals with the person and attacks the person. It's almost like Amaziah's feelings are triumphing over the truth. The way he feels that things are going is the way that it really is. And I thought that was only a modern thing. I say that, because it, that's almost like the air we breathe here today, isn't it? How often do we actually listen to the people who disagree with us? Are we trained to listen to the people who disagree with us or are we trained to react angrily to them? Are we trained to trust that God can 
tell us things? Or are we trained to just simply ignore people who disagree with us and silence them and get away from them? Oh no, they, they've said negative things about us, so we're going to isolate ourselves? I, 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 I'm, going to be, I'm scared to say this, but I hope I mean it. If you love me, brothers and sisters, tell me when I'm wrong. Tell me when I'm doing things that are wrong. And brothers and sisters, I, by God's grace, I pray that this is true, but when I tell you that I think you're in sin, I'm not doing it because I hate you. I'm doing it because I love you. And I pray that that would be the same for me. I don't want to be like Amaziah. I don't want to avoid the topic of justice. Because that's the natural way we operate. We ignore the truth just to be able to keep going in what we are. Lest we think that this, is an, this has been the case for the entire history of humanity. It's always been unwise. That's why you, when, you read, uh, when you read through the, the Proverbs, you'll see this repeated over and over again, that we need to be able to hear correction. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the worst part is what happens because of this. You see, the ultimate problem isn't that we end up in, in, in disunity or anger or hatred. The biggest problem is that God is still God and God is still just. Us ignoring God and silencing his messengers doesn't change God. I have to repeat that because I think it bears repeating. Us avoiding the messages of God, us avoiding the truth of God's word, doesn't change God. That means if we are going to be punished for sin, our feelings won't matter. Our willingness to not see the truth won't change it. I hate to break this to you. Some of you are strong. Some of you are amazing people. But in a fight between you and God, you lose. It really is that simple. And this is what Amos has to tell Amaziah. Verses 14 to 17, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Amos is underscoring the fact that what's important here is not Amos. What's important is the message that Amos is bringing and the truth of that message. But unfortunately for Amaziah, if you don't want to hear the truth, if you choose not to hear the truth, the truth is confirmed in you. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus says the Lord, 
Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall go, surely go into exile away from its land. Before this, before Amaziah reacted to Amos in this uh, way of trying to silence him, Amaziah wasn't facing it directly. It wasn't going to be, it was, there wasn't a prophecy directly, you are going to be destroyed as Amaziah. But because Amaziah has chosen to ignore God, well, the result became what you see here. Remember the Pope Boyce quote I said from the beginning, God's nature doesn't change. We will either accommodate ourselves to his nature or seeking to be joyfully remade into his image, or we will run afoul of his just nature. As I said, in a fight between us and God, we lose. It's not even a contest. Amaziah makes the wrong choice. We can understand it, we can see it, but it's the wrong choice. Because you see, what God has done is given us an opportunity to turn away from our wickedness and live. And, and, and I say turn away from our wickedness and live, I don't mean just pray a prayer. I mean today to turn away from the person who seeks injustice and avoids the truth of God and turns to God himself and lets him work in our lives. That is what the mercy period we're living in is for. Brothers and sisters, we, the time has not yet come. Jesus has not yet returned, but he will. We need to turn from our wickedness and live and not pretend to, that we can avoid it. So there are applications here. I'm just gonna try and do them because I'm actually over time by one minute already. So I will try to finish these as, I, as quickly as I can. I've got at least two applications, I think maybe three. Yeah, three, ooh, I'm almost a Baptist. Three applications. First of all, Seek to hear God. I, uh, I'm going to say that because we need to do it. And we have a method of doing it. All of you have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, come talk to me afterwards. I'll get you a Bible. I'll hand you mine. Uh, seriously, you guys need Bibles. And the Bible is important not because it's a nice book or because it's got magic powers, but because it's what God tells us. If you want to hear God's word, open your Bible. I think one of the biggest problems that we run into as a church generally is that we don't open our Bibles. We just, we, we, we talk about how nice they are, we keep them in nice places, and we, we, we say we're going to read them all the time, and we sometimes do but we don't try to hear from them. And that's what I desire we, us, for us to do. Open your Bible and don't just read it to check off a mark. Read it to hear from God. We have the ability to hear God speak his oracles into our lives. The, the tragedy is that we often don't use it. 
Amos isn't walking about, but we all have Bibles. We need to read them. And, and we don't need to argue with our Bibles. It is important to struggle with your Bible because, let's face it, there's going to be difficult stuff in there. I've, I've gone through the Bible a couple of times. There's been a lot of really good knockdown, drag-out arguments I've had with God through the Bible. I always lose, but it's there. Try to honestly understand what it says. Don't hide away from it. Don't try to just say that this was something for that time and not for now. Take the time to read what the Bible means. And I'm going to say this, even though I'm sure the elders may get mad at me for it. If ever this church stops preaching the word of God, Brothers and sisters, call your elders to repentance, and if we will not repent, find a church that preaches the word of God. As with Amos, what is important is not this building. It is not the hierarchy we have around us. It's not the fact that we've got people who are educated in a certain way and have a certain set of doctrinal distinctives that we've signed off on. It's that we speak the word of God to you. Seek the word of God above all else. Second, not just hear God, but seek to obey God. When you see what the Bible tells you, what God tells us through his word, what God has said, do it. There was a phrase that was used in the, old church, in the church during the 16th and 17th centuries as the Protestant Reformation was going, going around. It was called Semper Reformanda. Everything sounds much nicer when you say it in Latin. It means always reforming. That's not just a thing for churches, it's for individuals too. We need to be a people that are always reforming. As you read the word of God, as you seek to see God operating in your life, take the time to be changed by it. Be always examining yourself in the light of the word of God and changing in light of his word. Recognize that every sin that we have is primarily a sin against God. Against you, God, only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Psalm 51.4. The point is that we must come face to face with who we are. This is, by the way, from uh, Dane Ortland in his book, Deeper. Left to our own steam, Christian salvation is not assistance. It is rescue. The gospel does not take our good and complete us with God's help. The gospel tells us we are dead and helpless, unable to contribute anything to our rescue, but the sin that requires it. Christian self salvation is not enhancing, it is resurrecting. Brothers and sisters, as we look into the word of God, let us be a people who pray to God to be changed by him. Let us despair of our goodness and our righteousness in our own power, and instead seek His. Recognize that God has made a way for this to happen. This is Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Brothers and sisters, let's turn from our sins. Let's turn from our sins daily and seek after him. And finally, let us rejoice in God's mercy and receive God's grace. Remember what I mean by the differences between those two words. Rejoice in God's mercy. Rejoice that God will not visit you with the punishment you so richly deserve. He took it on the cross in Jesus Christ. Receive the gifts of God as gifts. Every moment of every day, the gifts that we have that are gifts of God's grace. Since then, we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. In more modern terms, uh, again, Dane Orland in that book, Deeper, puts it this way. As you despair of yourself, agonizing over the desolation wrought by your failures, your weaknesses, your inadequacies, let that despair take you way down deep with honesty with yourself. For there you will find a friend, the living Lord Jesus himself who will startle you and surprise you with his gentle goodness as you leave self behind in repentance and bank on him afresh in faith. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is beautiful in ways that that I can only imagine sometimes. Lord God, I pray that today uh, this congregation may have heard from you more than they heard from me. Lord God, where uh, I have said anything stupid and made a mistake, I pray that you, Lord, would correct it in the hearts of your believing people. Where people are right now lost in their own self-righteousness, I pray that you would convict them and move them to be trusting in you and in your righteousness. Lord God, this time is yours. We are yours. I pray that by your spirit, you would be perfecting us. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.